Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you, and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual please remains, and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, a bank holiday special edition. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. So another scandal for the Conservative Party and a fresh by-election after Neil Parrish, Tory MP for Tiverton and Honiton in Devon, resigned on Saturday after admitting he twice watched pornography in the House of Commons. Though he called it a moment of madness, the allegations reignited a long-running row over the culture towards women in Westminster. On Sunday, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, denied there's a culture of misogyny in Parliament, blaming a few, quote, bad apples. When it comes to closing Parliament's bars, though, Labour's shadow paymaster General Fleur Anderson agrees with Kwarteng that it's probably not the solution. Honestly, if people can't behave appropriately, they don't know what to do because there's a bar around. I think there's a problem that goes far, far beyond that. I think there's a whole culture change that needs to happen. So what measures should be taken? The Telegraph reports Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle has called for a review of working practices in Westminster, including whether MPs should continue to directly employ staff. Conservative Party Chairman Oliver Dowden says that after the next general election, half of the party's members must be women. But the university's minister, Michelle Donlan, has rejected the idea of an all-women shortlist for the by-election to replace Neil Parrish. Well, on our programme today, some of our key interviews from the past couple of weeks, including on the subject of holding elected parliamentarians to account, I asked the Shadow Education Minister Helen Hayes whether the ministerial code was broken and in need of replacing with a more robust system on this occasion regarding the Prime Minister. Now, is it time for the ministerial code that offers guidance for elected officials to be ditched in favour of something a bit more concrete, perhaps a framework of rules with automatic consequences for wrongdoing, so that if a Prime Minister in future, Labour or Conservative, uh, uh, is, uh, is found guilty of breaking the law, then there are actual consequences laid down? Well, the Ministerial Code is very clear that if the Prime Minister or any Member of Parliament deliberately misleads the House of Commons, they are in contempt of Parliament and they should resign. Uh, so that's not the question that is stopping uh, action being taken in relation to our Prime Minister, who has absolutely no regard for the truth. 
And what we're calling for today and what Conservative MPs have the opportunity to do is to put this matter of the Prime Minister's behaviour before the Privileges Committee, which has the power both to summon evidence, it could uh, request and require the Sue Gray report to be published and to be put before it. It can require photographs to be um, disclosed. Uh, it can look at all of the evidence and it can sanction the Prime Minister if it finds that the Prime Minister has deliberately misled MPs, which would amount to contempt of Parliament. So the levers that we need to deal with this problem of our Prime Minister, who is a national disgrace, um, are available to MPs today to use. And, and that, that question of the, the ministerial code and whether it is in need of reform is just not the priority today. The priority is for MPs to take a decision uh, to, to put this matter to the Privileges Committee for investigation. And our Helen, motion allows... Helen, we already, have, we already have an investigation by the Met, several investigations by the Met, and by civil servant Sue Gray, who is gathering all the evidence. Surely that is, surely that is enough. The, the, uh, the investigation by the police has already found that the Prime Minister has broken the law and the government is delaying the publication of the Sue Gray report. Trust and confidence in our government and, as a, by extension, our parliament is at rock bottom at the moment. And it is vitally important that MPs show leadership on this issue, uh, begin that process of restoring decency, honesty and integrity to our politics. I, OK, I, but Helen, then th there is a problem, though, surely, is there not? If it's not the ministerial code, what is it? Because effectively, the sanctioning of this prime minister and in fact, any other prime minister were there in the, the same position. Uh, but in this particular case, it's actually down to his own MPs and opposition leaders are being frustrated in this. Should there be automatic sanctions that, that take place rather than a kind of honour code, which is what happens, uh, you know, in terms of parliament now? Where is where is the issue? Because the Labour Party is being frustrated here. So we have today the opportunity to refer the matter to the Privileges Committee, which has the power to sanction the, the Prime Minister. And, and I don't know what Conservative MPs feel they need to wait for to make that decision to refer the Prime Minister to the committee that has the power to investigate fully, to look at the evidence and to sanction him. Um, that, that power is there already. Um, I used to sit in the Shadow Cabinet Office team. I looked in detail at the Ministerial Code. I think there is a need to, to look more broadly and in a different timescale at the reform of, of the Ministerial Code and whether it's fit for purpose in the circumstance where we have a Prime Minister that, that will simply ignore it um, in, in the case of you know, his Cabinet Ministers who, who were found to um, you know, be bullying, for example. The Prime Minister simply ignored the Ministerial Code. There, there is certainly some issues there, and, and I believe there's a need to look at the Ministerial Code. But, but that is, an, if, if we're thinking about the question that's in front of us today, that is simply another form of dither in delay uh, when we have the, 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 the ability to make a decision to refer the matter to the Privileged Committee who can investigate in full, can summon all of the evidence and ha has the power to sanction the Prime Minister if it is found that he has deliberately misled Parliament. And, okay, and I want to ask to... you. I want to ask you on a different matter. The uh, government's policy for uh, 
processing migrants in Rwanda. Now, plenty of criticism of that. I know that Labour is opposed to that policy, but does Labour have a plan to sort out the uh, problem with people crossing the English Channel? Absolutely. Um, I've been to northern France several times and I've spoken there both with refugees and with organisations that work to provide humanitarian support to refugees in northern France. And it's clear that the the government's proposal to process refugees to Rwanda simply isn't a solution to the problem of desperate people taking to the English Channel, uh, the vast majority of whom, if they survive that journey, are, are found to be asylum seekers um, eligible for asylum in the UK. Uh, so the, the, the problem is that we need to cooperate with France and with other European countries to crack down on people smugglers who are vile organisations that, that exploit the most vulnerable people. We need to introduce safe and legal routes so that vulnerable, desperate people don't have to take to the sea. And if they are fleeing horrific persecution or war, they can find sanctuary in the UK and apply for that uh, through a safe and legal route and don't have to risk their lives at sea. That was Labour MP Helen Hayes. Now we pivot to migration. 254 people were detected in seven small boats crossing the English Channel yesterday after an 11-day spell with no arrivals. I spoke to Tim Farron, the Liberal Democrat MP and former party leader, to discuss how the UK is simply not doing enough for refugees, particularly refugees from Ukraine. Is Britain's um, immigration policy wrong? Should we be accepting far more people into the country? Well, just just first say, I mean, it's not that we should that, that we should have a target. It's we should recognise two things. First of all, we do have, as a civilised, safe country, a responsibility not just to refugees, but also to other members of the international community to do our fair share. And the second thing, to but remember, you're saying that not we're not be... effectively doing our sh- well, fair no, shares. No, we're not. No, absolutely not. So then the, that implies the, the, the it bringing second... more, allowing more people you know, safe passage into the country, well, not it, on a boat. Yeah, it does. You, you, create, you create safe routes, because if you want to stop people taking dangerous routes, create safe ones. The thing to remember is this. So, for example, if you're from Sudan or Eritrea, you do not have a safe route to come to the United Kingdom. But those who do get here, it turns out that 93% of Sudanese and 97% of Eritreans, when they get here and go through the process, turn out to be genuine refugees. Um, fleeing persecution. And so why don't we just judge people on the basis of their claim? Are they a genuine refugee or not? And if they're not, then you return them to a safe place. But you don't judge them on the means by which they got here, by boat or by plane or whatever. Tim, it's also also true to say hmm. that Britain is an attractive proposition for, for economic migrants, isn't it? And many people are prepared to risk their life for a better life in Britain, whether they're fleeing a war zone or not. Yeah. So let's do two things at once, not flatter ourselves and then flatter ourselves. <laughs> to not flatter ourselves, are we an attractive place? We're only a quarter as attractive as Germany or a third as attractive as France and half as attractive as many other countries in Europe because we get relatively few asylum seekers coming to the United Kingdom. Like I say, and if you were to put us back into the EU just for the purposes of a league table, we'd be 18th out of 28, so you know, lower mid-table. We are not a place that everybody makes a beeline to. But to flatter us, you need to remember why it is that people will aim to come to the United Kingdom. That 
smallish number of people who do. And it's because of the language that they might share, the Commonwealth links that we're supposed to be proud of that we share, but also the fact that the UK has a reputation. And that reputation is a glorious one. It is, this is a place where you can raise a family, you can make a living, you can live a life in freedom, freedom from religious and political persecution that those people have experienced elsewhere. So the only way you can really stop that relatively small number of people coming here as refugees is to completely torpedo our reputation for being decent. I suspect that's what the government's trying to do, but they will fail because we've got centuries worth of heritage and record that backs that up. That was Tim Farron, Liberal Democrat MP, the former party leader. Coming up next, Crispin Blunt discussing Britain's commitment to Ukraine more broadly. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, Conservative MP Crispin Blunt was speaking to us recently discussing Britain's commitment to Ukraine. Have a listen. French President Emmanuel Macron says that there are clear indications of war crimes uh, committed in the town just outside uh, Kyiv. Do you think these pictures and what looks like uh, the actions of, of Putin's troops on, on civilians changes things? Does it require a step change in our response? Uh, well, it's difficult to see how we can uh, reasonably do more. We've effectively now committed to being uh, the arsenal for... Uh, the Ukrainians to uh, give them everything uh, that they need. Um, and But what's important here is holding the Russians to account and the lesson uh, to be reinforced that the accountability for war crimes in the Balkans is going to extend to this war between Russia uh, and Ukraine. And going forward, uh, all nations uh, and armies who are engaged in warfare, are going to be held to account in a way which uh, modern recording methods uh, and accountability will make uh, the gathering of evidence uh, that much easier uh, and that much more reliable. And at some point, you are going to be brought to justice. However long it takes, uh, there will be a tribunal uh, that will be awaiting you. 
and uh, whether it's going to need a change of regime in uh, the nation-state itself, uh, or for you to be unwise enough to travel to a jurisdiction where universe, crimes of universal jurisdiction apply, you will be found and you will be held to account. Um, this is a watershed moment um, for Europe. What does it mean for Britain then? Uh, we are effectively isolated from Europe. That was shown in the kind of rather cold sh shoulder moments that Boris Johnson got when he met with European leaders last week. Does that leave our foreign policy essentially entirely aligned with the US? No, I don't think so. I think there is a, a distinct role for the United Kingdom um, post-Brexit. And it is as the permanent member of the Security Council uh, that must be most committed to the international rules-based order. Uh, the upholding of international law and human rights and our values uh, that uh, including accountability and uh, democracy, uh, is a role for the United Kingdom amongst those uh, the, those five powers. The other four, uh, the French, in effect, representing the position of the European Union, and uh, China, America, and Russia, uh, representing their own interests as a much larger nations, uh, does mean that there is a distinct role for the UK. Uh, and I think uh, we now have the opportunity to press forward with uh, insisting upon uh, our values, supporting an international rules-based order. Uh, OK, but but we have before. allowed lots of loopholes to emerge, particularly around dirty money in Britain. Um, you know, off, we're well known as a kind of an offshore financial destination. Are we going to be better this time, actually spend some money on real enforcement and walk the walk as well as talk the talk? Well, I think we're beginning to do so, and we've seen that in the policy that Dominic Raab put in place, the so-called Magnitsky sanctions. We've started on this process, and we started on this process uh, two or three years ago, and we have got to make... Uh, uh, we've got to tidy London up, there's no doubt about that, uh, and we've got to make sure that we reinforce our reputation as being uh, a Rolls-Royce uh, quality of service. So if you are... Uh, if you're a British... Uh, um, if you're selling British services overseas, uh, that we enforce a reputation that you're getting the best. And if you're going to put your money through London, that's going to be, should be, its own kite mark. Um, that the money uh, is transparent and we know where it's from uh, and it's clean. And we have to attend to that. You're quite right. Vladimir Volensky, in his um, latest video message, singled out France and Germany for blocking uh, Ukraine's progress towards being a, a NATO member in, in 2008, and he was pretty scathing about that. Do, do, you, do you broadly agree with him, or do you think that the, the West was, was right not to allow uh, Ukraine into NATO? Um, personally, I think we should have been uh, braver in, uh, in 2008. We should have seen what the Russians were doing to Georgia, and uh, the obvious uh, lesson at that point was uh, to uh, accept the Ukrainian application. Um, and if, had they done so, it's, uh, the Russians would have then been faced with an immediate choice about what to do. It. And I uh, now I think that had we done so, Crimea was um, have been secure within uh, uh, the state of Ukraine. Mm.
Okay, so looking back, what about currently, though, the Times reports today that only one in 10 of the refugees who've been actually issued with UK visas under the Homes for Ukraine scheme are actually here in Britain. That's 500 people. Why do you think it's moving so slowly? Uh, You'll be better off asking the, the Home Secretary that, but I know that she has been pressing incredibly hard to put in place a new system. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at pretty short order for the uh, for the Home Office uh, traditionally, the whole uh, sort of outlook of the Home Office is to protect the United Kingdom and to make sure that people are checked properly for security and the rest, um, and to change that to a system that is going to be uh, made much easier for people to uh, to access and for online uh, applications and for doing away with uh, uh, biological testing and the rest uh, is. Um, is work in progress, but those numbers will ramp up very quickly. Voters, though, are perhaps even more concerned about the cost of living crisis. Nigel Mills, Conservative MP for Amber Valley, admitted to us recently that the tax rise that has just come into force is probably not a good idea. Well, let's discuss today's political issues with our guest, Nigel Mills, Conservative MP for Amber Valley. Nigel sits on the Commons Business Committee, the Working Pensions Committee and the International Development Committees. Nigel, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. So April is the month of a massive hike in energy bills, higher council tax, petrol, diesel, food prices, water bills. Was it really a good idea to add a tax rise to all of that? Probably not. I think at the time this was announced last autumn, it it did make sense to, you know, we've got a huge NHS backlog with millions of people waiting treatment. We've got plans to put in place extra capacity that had to be paid for. We just spent £400 billion getting through the through the pandemic, paying, you know, 10 million people's wages for part of that time. But it kind of made sense to say, actually, look, employers and individuals, we've got to start paying the bills we need to catch the NHS up. We need more tax to do it. Uh, but I think just the way the cost of living shot up, that's become a pretty awful, awful timing mm. to sort of like be putting taxes up at probably the, the worst of the spike. Uh, I think I would have preferred to delay the tax rise until the autumn at the earliest or something. But, you know, at some point we do have to start paying the bills we've racked up for the last two years and you have chosen to start doing some of that now. So perhaps it would have been better to leave it to autumn. Given that we haven't left it to the autumn, do you think the Chancellor is going to have to jump in and uh, and and do something else on the cost of living before before we get to that budget in the autumn? Yeah, I think you'll certainly need to do something before we get to next winter. I mean, we, I mean we've just put the state pension and after-work benefits up by three percent, which is you know less than half of inflation as it's currently running. I think the idea that people on fixed incomes with no easy way of increasing the amount they take home can get through next winter on only 3% more money than they have this winter when we know inflation will have been running at well over 7%. I think it's just impossible. So I think you'll have to do something for you know, certain groups of people. He could just choose to do, you know, those struggling the most. He could choose to repeat what he's done this month with the kind of running the council tax system in reverse, mm-hmm. giving every household 150 quid. I think he'll need to do some something to help people out as what will be a really difficult position for far too many people next winter. Mm. I mean, I understand that obviously, you know, global events are moving so quickly, perhaps one could blame that in part, but also there's there's a problem surely for the Conservative government when it comes to business. I mean, the British Chambers of Commerce and a lot of business groups before the uh, mini budget um, a few weeks ago were saying that Sunak had to do more, that we are in the middle, as the BCC puts it, of a cost of doing business crisis. And they were really 
pretty, I'll say, annoyed that the government didn't do more. I mean, this is a conservative government. Businesses should be at the core, surely, of policy. So, you know, they're also being crushed by the tax rise, by fuel, by raw materials, by, you know, pay going up so much. Sunak has to do more for for the job generators. Yeah, I think this becomes quite a challenge, doesn't it, as to how much money the government wants to spend and then where do you get that money from? You just go, maybe you'd have to borrow it and we've kind of racked up pretty huge amounts of debt since the financial crisis. I mean, we're now well over over two trillion, basically 100% of GDP. I'm not sure how many businesses are getting very happy if they've borrowed more than 100% of their turnover. So you're almost asking different people to pay taxes so you can give them money back to different people. It's, it's quite hard to fix all these problems. I think the actual fact the government's efforts during the pandemic and then the cost of crisis have actually done things we've never tried mm. to do before in terms of giving money out. Uh, that's not normally what's done. I, I think I would agree we have to be quite careful that you're not yeah. overloading too many burdens of business. I mean, there's certainly some sectors where the you know, if energy bills are going to double for businesses, but, but you know, if we're not careful, we'll drive some sectors mm. completely out of being competitive. I think we, we have to find a way of supporting those most energy-intensive ones, certainly. But, and we're kind of hope, hoping that the plan we'll see, I think it's due for tomorrow on energy security, we'll say something about that. Yeah, the, the thing is the GDP, um, the, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio, though, for the UK, for example, I mean, it's below France. Yes, we're above Germany, but Germany very strong on that point. I mean, if if you look comparatively, the UK UK borrowing isn't out of whack with other G7 countries. No, I mean, they're probably all at record high levels or certainly record high peacetime levels. Uh, my point was, if you, if you want government to support business through wages going up, energy bills going up, fuel bills going up and everything else going up, that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, you know, who's going to pay for that? you'd be having to borrow a whole load more, which will have to then start recovering in the future. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's, a, that there's a solution to everybody who's suffering in this crisis if the government can try and ease them through it. We need to ease people through the, you know, the who are worst having to be that individuals or, or businesses, but a limit to what government can do, I think. That was Nigel Mills. Well, join us again tomorrow when we'll be interviewing the Labour MP Tan Desi. This is Bloomberg.